by a, name, by a man by the name of Manasseh, who's, who's going to be reigning in chapter 21, and we'll talk about later in 2 Chronicles 33. He was 12 years old when he became king. He would reign for, the Bible says, 55 years. How much influence can you have upon people if you are reigning as a leader for 55 years? Can you imagine if a president of the United States, and just pick one, what kind of influence do they have if they were able to reign for 55 years? We know what kind of impact they can have with four, what kind of impact they can have with eight. What would happen if they reign for 55? Aren't we glad sometimes it's just for four? <laughs> I don't care who they are, whether you think they're good or they're not, sometimes it's, it's never a bad time, or it's never bad sometimes for leaders to to take a seat in someone else's reign, hopefully another good leader. But in Second Kings twenty one, we have a man by the name of Manasseh who's gonna begin reigning for twelve years or reigning at twelve years of age, which really many many times that was kind of following his advisor, uh, his advisors. But notice verse two and following. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practice soothsaying, use witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, in the house, in the house which the Lord had said to David and Solomon, his son, in, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Now this idol, uh, he's mentioned there, this God, was supposed to be a God of fortune and of happiness. And he places it in the house of the Lord. There in verse 7. Verse 8, the Bible says, I will, and continue reading, the Bible says, and I will, take, and I will not make the, the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, according to all the law that my servant Moses has, servant Moses commanded them. And so there is the stipulation, they will do well, they will prosper, if the condition being their obedience there in verse, verse 8. Verse 9, but they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations and has acted more wickedly than all the, nation, than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with, sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears, hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plump and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it 
upside down. So I'll forsake the remnant of my inheritance, deliver them to the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and provoked me to anger since, they, since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we find in verse 17 it says the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did, and it's a reference to Second to Second Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33, which we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, where it talks again about Manasseh and some different things are said about him, but much of the same is also recorded. You think about Manasseh, you think about the things which he did. We're going to find that he did. Well, let's just go back for a moment. And let's think about some of those things. Let's think about and the bad that Manasseh did. Now this morning I want to show how one can turn from wickedness, any wickedness, even great wickedness, and turn to God. The Bible says many times there in 2 Kings 21 how innocent blood was shed. It talks about the amount by saying and picturing it as if the streets of, Jer of Jerusalem were filled from one end of the city to the other. How he even made his son pass through the fire, which is a reference to his son being laid down on the altar of Molech, on the arms of Molech, meaning he, he killed his son by sacrificing him to an idol. He killed many innocent people, if you saw there in 2 Kings 21. So much so, again, the, the blood being pictured as filling the streets. He was not what we call a good man when we find him in 2 Chronicles 33 and 2 Kings 21. We find, again, in way of recap, he was 12 years old, right? 2 Chronicles 33. Reigned 55 years. He did evil and the sigh of the Lord, according to the abomination to the nations whom the Lord had cast up before the children of Israel. Now, I want you to think for a moment of that phrase. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Did Manasseh think it was evil? <coughs> Clearly not. Right? I mean, if we do something, until someone points it out to us, until we look at the Bible and say, well, I don't think that's correct after all, until that happens, we probably think what I'm doing is just fine. But what he did was not just fine before God. The Bible says there he did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to, that is, means he did these things after the pattern of the nations whom they were supposed to do what? Uh, pattern, after the pattern of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, before all these wicked nations, he was falling after their same pattern. That's when we find the phrase there, according to the abominations of the nations, means he's doing things like the nations whom the Lord had cast out before them. He's following the wicked people who are all around him. Right? We find the phrase in the Bible about the idea about wanting to be like the nations around us. Various kings wanted to do that, right? They called for a king and people visual back in the Old Testament as well. They wanted a king. Give us a king. They got Saul. They got just what they deserved. And we find here in 2 Chronicles 33... 
more of the same, right? We're going to fall after the, the nations around us. We're going to be like everybody else. You can't go wrong doing that, except in the eyes of the Lord. He rebuilt, verse 3, the high places. It was a reference to, to idolatrous places where they would be offering up idolatrous worship to their idols. He says, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. So he didn't learn much from his father, apparently, did he? He didn't listen to him. Sometimes the father tries to impart those, those sound teachings to others, and sometimes it doesn't exactly stick. In the verse 3, we find it didn't exactly stick, did it? He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. You know what's interesting in, in these verses? This pointed out the gods he's worshiping, he has to first create them before he can worship them. Do we have to create the God of the Bible before we can worship him? No. He was always been in existence. Genesis 1 tells us that, that God created all things, get to be there first, right? John 1, verse 1 and following tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, reference to Christ and God being there before time began as we know it. No, we do not create the God of the Bible. He's always existed. The false idols, or idols rather, and false gods, you have to build those, right? He built altars for all the hosts of heaven, verse 5, in the, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he's blaspheming, and even must say mocking God because of where he's putting these, these things. Their gods couldn't move themselves. They would build altars and move their gods to where they wanted them to be. Didn't have hands and feet. No, they had to carry their gods literally sometimes on their own backs, didn't they? Look at verse 6. And he caused his sons, here the Second Chronicles uses the plural, his sons, not just one, his sons, to pass through the fire in the, in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Uh, in the, in the he practiced soothsaying and used witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. You think the Lord is pleased with such things? The Bible tells us clearly he's not. It provoked him to anger. What happens when a child does something they, shouldn't, they know they shouldn't be doing, and they do it and their parents find out, and they try to keep on doing it with other parents finding out? Does that provoke the parent to anger? Yeah, right? You tell a child don't do something, they wander off and try to do it secretly, it provokes you to anger. Did Manasseh know better? I think it's very clearly he knew better because he, he knew, I think, who built who had tore down those altars that he was now rebuilding. It was his dad who had torn those things down. Why did his dad tear those things down? Because they were false idols. They were they were idols, they were false gods. That's when they were torn down in the first place, but yet Manasseh rebuilds them. He did those things which he knew he ought not. How we know that? We'll keep reading. We find verse 7, he, he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God. Again, the idol which he had made. Create your God first and you can worship it. Of which God has said to David and to Solomon his son, in, in this house in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. It means it's supposed to belong to God and God alone. We find in verse 8 that God said, he will, not remove, he will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for, their, for your fathers. 
Only if they are careful to do all that I've commanded them. I mean, they will not be cast out into captivity. They will not be driven out unless they lose and lose their faith and walk away from God. Look at verse 8 again. Only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them. According to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. You want to stay where you are and not be driven off into captivity. Not have your enemies harass me. Harass you rather. Follow the commandments of God there in verse 8, right? If you want to have a happy life, we, then we should be those who follow God. Nothing has changed. Verse 9, so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. It means they were doing more evil than all the nations whom the Lord had destroyed in front of them before their eyes. That's what it means before the children of Israel. They saw the nations the Lord had drove out. What are they doing? They're acting just like them. They're acting just like those and the Lord had drove out because of their evilness. His actions, as we know here, in 2 Chronicles 33, are described as seducing others with false gods and wickedness in general, right? He wasn't, it wasn't enough that he was doing it. He was influencing, encouraging, and causing others to do exactly the same thing. If we do something wrong, we have to deal with it. When we cause others to do something wrong, are we going to be held accountable for that as well? Yes. Was Manasseh going to be held accountable for leading others astray? Yes. False teachers are condemned not just because of what they believe, but because they're carrying others away with them. Manasseh was, was a false teacher in the sense that he was leading people away from God into idolatry. He was going to be condemned, everyone, and also everyone who followed with him. We're also going to find, as we can get to the end of this lesson, is that his actions impacted them severely, that even after what he, he decided to do later in life, that his negative footprint still left an impact on many others. We'll get to that more later. But we, we find a warning. Now, before God pours out his wrath on people, you know there's always a warning. How long did it take to build the ark in Genesis? Roughly 120 years, right? We say he was, we call Noah a preacher of righteousness, right? For 120 years, he preached the word of God while the ark was in preparation. That's 120 years of what? Long suffering and patience. There didn't have to be just eight people in the ark. Eight human beings on the ark, but there was, and there was for a reason. Because no one else wanted to do what was right. Thus, the whole purpose of having the ark is to remove all wickedness around them. Look at 2 Chronicles 33, this time looking at verse 10 and 11. We find the warning in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. There's the warning. We don't need the details of it, but what did the Lord do in verse 10? Warning. The Bible says the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. It doesn't tell us how. It could have been by prophet. It could have been he spoke to him directly. That was not uncommon in the Old Testament time period. But he spoke to Manasseh and to his people. But we'll notice what happened in verse 10. Or rather what did not happen. They would not listen. What happens when a parent tells their child to do something, but they do not listen? Do we let them get away with that? The Bible tells us we shouldn't. 
Do we let them get away with that? No. There are certain things that take place, right? And in verse 11, what happens? Well, verse 10, they would not listen. God doesn't say, okay, I tried. No. Therefore the Lord brought, brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Why? Back up for a moment. What did the Lord say back in verse 8? I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them. Right? You'll stay exactly where you are so long as you do what you're supposed to be doing. That's the way we paraphrase that, right? But what happens? Well, they wouldn't listen. Verse, verse 10 tells us, but they would not listen, quite plainly. You can't get any more clear than they would not listen. You ever talk to someone, sometimes it's me, but you ever talk to someone and they don't really listen to what you're saying? In verse 10, it's more, you know, the price is more than just annoying someone who's talking to you. Here, it's they're, they're, they're ignoring God. They're not listening. And in verse 11, he says, what? Therefore, that is, as a result of them not listening, verse 10, the Lord, the same one who spoke to them in verse 10 and warned them, the same one, because there is only one. The Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria. He used what? Assyria to punish them. That's what he did. Who took Manasseh, he, knows, he points out specifically here Manasseh, with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. He was taken off into captivity. You're not going to listen. God actually speaks to him and to the people, warning them they would not listen. What happened? They were punished. You know, there is always a road out of evil. There's always a road out, a way back to God. Oh, perhaps a road to God for the first time, depending on who we're talking about. Look at verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 33. We find that Manasseh is going to have to humble himself before God. The Bible says, now, now when he was in affliction, that is during his captivity, while he's in chains, that's his affliction, what we just talked about there in verse 11, he implored the Lord his God. What is that a reference to? He's praying to God. Manasseh knew better to do the things he had done. It's clear from verse 12 that he knew why he was there in the first place. We know verse 10, God told him, right, when God warns him, but he would not listen. Verse 12, the Lord, he was in affliction. He implored the Lord his God. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. What is that a reference to? Repentance. Why? Because of the context. That's how we know that's what he's, what he's talking about. It's more than just, oh, you are the God, the one and only God. It's repentance, turning from his ways. How do we know that from what happens following these things? Look at verse 13. And he prayed to him, who? The God of his fathers. And he received his entreaty, who did? God, of his, the God of his fathers. Heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Why? He prayed to God and God responded. He knew that he was God. He knew that he was the one and only God, right? 
He brought him back to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then, what? As a result of what happened, he knew that the Lord was God. Which tells us that he knew, as we're going to find, as we continue on there, that these idols which he had set up, these false gods, the host of heaven, were not a god. We find, as we continue reading here in verse 14 and following, we find a changed life in Manasseh, if no one else in Manasseh. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And, and it enclosed uh, up hill, and he raised it up, and he raised it up to a very great height. Then he put 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 up military captains in all the all the fortified cities of Judah. Why would you do that? Is is a wall designed to keep people in, or to keep certain people out? You could say both, but I think in Manasseh's case, is to keep certain people out. Like those who who's going to cast out those soothsayers and spiritists, all those who he'd been consulting. Look at verse 15. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and, and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord in the Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. You think he you think when he cast those items out, that certain people follow those items right out the gate? You know, I picture Manasseh, this is just my thinking, getting a cart, throwing all these things in the back of the cart, carrying them out, and just dumping them outside the city and seeing people run out after it, following, the, following those idols, and him shutting the gate behind them. That's just my thinking. Is that what happened? I have no idea. But he cast them out. And again, I think part of the reason to build walls is to keep people out. You think Manasseh wanted those things back in there or anyone he had anything to do with them? Probably not. Verse 16, he also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank, and, uh, thank offerings on it, and commanded the Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now, what was Manasseh doing? He was bearing fruits worthy of repentance, wasn't he? By his actions, he's saying that we're turning a whole different direction. Did everyone agree with it? I don't think there's any doubt that people did not always agree with it. Verse 17 tells us, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, but only to the Lord their God. You know, they sacrificed to God, but they sacrificed in the high places. There's a word they not to do those things. Was everybody perfect, perfect with it? No. But what was Manasseh doing? Could he control every single person? No, I don't think so. But he made the command, right? Manasseh's heart and Manasseh's intentions are pretty clear. When the Bible tells us that he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel, you think that's who he's serving also? Yes. Even those who were sacrificing in the high places, they were still only sacrificing the Lord their God, but they were still sacrificing in the high places. I mean, not everything was torn down. Think about some lessons for us today. You know, sin can become a pattern. It can become a lifestyle. One, sin is not a pattern, but also we have to realize that just because something is not a certain lifestyle does not mean that sin will not separate us from God. Someone will tell you, well, you know, until your sin becomes, becomes your lifestyle, then you're not really condemned. That's false. 
Sin will separate us from God no matter how many times we do it or how seldom we do it. It will still separate us from God. A lifestyle, a pattern of sin, which is what we find with Manasseh, in this case, it takes time, doesn't it? He reigned 55 years when all of them were as a servant of God. He was 12 years old when he became king. We don't know when the Lord came and spoke to him and to the people. The Bible doesn't say. I'm sure some commentator has something to say about it. But he reigned at least for a period as a king who did not follow the Lord. But he also reigned for a period as a king who turned things around or did so to the very best of his ability, it would seem. And at least him and many others followed God. Sin can become a pattern, a pattern, but a pattern of sin takes time. That means that seldom does a pattern of sin change overnight. With Manasseh, he was warned, right? We saw it back in verse 10. He was warned by God. He didn't listen. I believe it's 2 Kings 21 that says he, they, paid, they paid no attention. The wickedness described was going on for years, not just for days. The blood being described as filling the streets of Jerusalem from one end to the other, that takes a while, doesn't it? But it also takes a crazed man to do that and crazed people to do that. But it was a pattern of wickedness that lasted for years. The length of time a sin is committed does not change the sin from wrong to right. You know, the people probably thought, well, we've done this for so many years. Surely it's okay. God hasn't killed us yet. You hear people sometimes today say, well, let God strike me down if it's wrong. Well, on Judgment Day, He will. Just because we are not killed on the spot like some we read about in the Bible does not mean God is not that God is approving of it. He didn't kill David on the spot. He didn't kill Saul on the spot. He didn't kill Manasseh on the spot, which means the Lord reacts differently on different times, doesn't He? But we find that when we, we find within the Bible that when we have committed sin, the best thing we can do and the logical thing we can do is to make those things right before God. We confess our sins to God, repent of those things, we pray to God. The second law of pardon. Repentance brings you into fellowship with God. This is what happened with Manasseh. It brought him into fellowship with God. Repentance brings God into one's everyday life. It also brings joy and relief. You know, it's interesting. You look at what Manasseh does after his, as he's turning to God. That he is basically purifying the city, so to speak. You think there's some relief in that? I don't think there's any doubt. The Bible doesn't tell us about it. But we know that what happened, what was the end result of Manasseh doing evil things? He went off into captivity. What would happen if he did not repent? He would stay right there in captivity and die his sins. That's what would happen. The only thing that brought him out was him turning to God. If he had not done that, he would have died in his sins. And he was stood condemned until he repented of those things. Only by turning to God was able to come, to come out of captivity. And so in a quite literal sense, his sins had literally put him into bondage in a very literal way. You know, the same thing happened to Jonah, didn't it? In the great fish. Why was he in the fish? Because he sinned against God. 
It is quite literally imprisoned in that great fish because of his disobedience. Why, why were the people of Israel wandering the wilderness for 40 years? Because of their disobedience. Many times their own disobedience comes with physical consequences. And with Manasseh, he was often in captivity. In captivity, Why? Because he had done sin and encouraged others to do the same thing. He dismissed God and his captivity became very real. And for us today, if we do not turn from our sins on the day of judgment, we'll face something a lot, face something a lot worse than some kind of captivity that Manasseh faced. Our shackles won't be chains. Our prison won't be the belly of a great fish. Instead, our new dwelling place will be in eternal damnation, right? That's what the judgment day is all about, separating the righteous from the wicked. Not according to my standards or anyone else's, but according to God's. Repentance is a soul-saving action. When Manasseh changed and turned to God, it quite literally saved his soul from hell. And all those who followed his pattern, his now good example, would also have their souls saved from hell as well. It is a soul-saving action. That's why when people today dismiss it offhandedly, friend, that should disturb us. Repentance is a soul-saving action. Failure to repent dissolves fellowship with God. Look at Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Failure to repent dissolves our relationship with God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. It's not that God cannot save us, verse 1, or that He is incapable of doing so, but there is something literally between us and God. Verse 2, what is it? Your iniquities, that is your sins, have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. You want to be separated from God? Just live in sin. There you go. You Now you're separated from God. But friends, it comes at a price. It comes at a dissolved fellowship with God. It comes with a separation from God. And on the day of judgment, it will come with an eternal separation from God. If we have loved ones who have passed on, who are faithful to the Lord, there's only one way to see them ever again of being faithful to God. If we want to see those who have gone on before us, who have died in the faith, it's a phrase we use sometimes, we want to see them again. We too must be faithful to God. We too must put God first. And we can do that. You know, we think about all these examples of people turning away from sin and turning to God. We sometimes think about Saul and all the things he did and how he turned to God, how he persecuted the church, how he had people put off into prison and before his conversion. You know, Manasseh is not any different, is it? I mean, he did a whole lot of evil, didn't he? He literally killed people, including members of his own family, to offer up to their, to their gods. And yet he still turned to God before it was too late. If a man like that can turn to God, can't we? Can we turn to God for the very first time? Well, absolutely. The question becomes is, are you ready and willing to turn from the bad, that is the sin in your life, and turn to God? You know, the very first thing that we have to do if we want to turn to God 
is we have to hear the word of God. Not hearing some some you know motivational speech we hear sometimes that is passed off as a sermon. And you can apply that to any person you want who doesn't preach the gospel. But if it's not the gospel message, friends, it's not what we need to hear. And don't construe that to say we have to preach fire and brimstone every single sermon. But if it's not based on Bible, we don't really need it. We have to hear the word of God. And then we have to believe it, don't we? When Manasseh turned to God there in 2 Chronicles 33, it's because he heard what God had said before, was remembering it. He was now praying to God because what? He wanted out of where he was. And we find he believed God when he was brought out of bondage. And we find similar things in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost, a short sermon like we talked about on Wednesday night, just, you know, for us, a little over 20 verses, right? But when they heard what he had said, they asked the question, what must we do, right? Peter responded not with something that was impossible to do. He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's what he told them to do. We do the same thing today. We don't require anything the Bible doesn't require because that's what we were to follow in the first place. We hear, we repent, we confess our sin, we confess that Christ is the Son of God, Romans 10, verse 17, and we are baptized. But then we have to remain faithful to God. And it doesn't matter if we are we follow those steps and we then we turn away from God later in life, then we just lose it all, right? In order to be near God. You must be far from sin. In order to be near God, you must be far from sin. I want you to think about this for a moment. Does it make logical sense for us to be living in sin, that is, doing things which are not right in the eyes of God, they are not in agreement with the Word of God, does it make logical sense for us to do those things and still think that we're going to have heaven as our home one day? Now, this is the day that many recognize as the birth of Christ, which is, I mean, if we're honest, you look at history, it's a day that the Catholics selected and really was a compromise, but we won't get into all that for the date. We look at the Bible, we find when they celebrate the birth of Christ, at his birth, no other day. You know, his birthday came year after year. Where are we told to remember instead all the time. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. See, when we do things the Bible way, you know, it's, on, it's, it's, it's interesting. It actually relieves a whole lot of stress, a whole lot of traditions that are passed down. I'm not saying we can't exchange gifts and things such as that. I'm not going to get into all that this morning, but nothing wrong with using this time to be with family and do, do other things that are completely harmless for us to do. But friends, there are some traditions if we do follow them, they will separate us from God. Because it's not based on Bible things. We're putting, we start putting a whole lot of focus upon them. Next thing you know, that's more important than coming to worship, right? I mean, there are those today, and we've seen online here, you know, talking about, well, you know, Sunday is Christmas, so I'd really need to go to church. What is Sunday first? It's the Lord's Day, right? It's a day the Lord has set aside for us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. If we want to have heaven as our home, we have to remember those certain things as well. You know, that may be new for some of us to hear, and that's fine, but it's something for us to think about. 
We think about Manasseh, getting back to our lesson this morning. We think about Manasseh, he had more than just some traditions. He was literally following after God that he had created. But friends, what does, what does it take for something today to become our idol? All it has to do is be more important than God. It doesn't have to be made out of wood or stone. All it has to do is be more important than God. It can be an event. It can be a tradition. It can be an item. It can be ourselves. But if it's more important than God, that has now become our idol. The same things that Manasseh was condemned for in the Old Testament. Do we think we'll be any different than him? And we stand before God, stand before Christ for the day of judgment, because he is a judge. And we have things in our life that are more important than him. Do you think he's going to care? I'll give you this one last illustration. If you were on your wedding day, and you were standing before your soon-to-be spouse, and there's something on your mind more important than the person you're supposed to be looking at in the eyes, you think they're going to, you think they're going to care about that? Can you imagine being before your soon-to-be spouse on the wedding day and doing this? Uh-huh. You think they care? You know, if there's anything between us and God, do you think he cares? Because, friends, we should. If there are things between us and God, we can make it not so. We can decide to make things less important and make God much more important. 